0: Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. Yeah, so this is, uh,
1: I mean, I think when it was proposed to us by our producer
0: uh, that we thought art is that,
1: thats not really something we've talked about on the podcast before, but, you know, the more we were, were in the interview and sitting with it afterwards, talking about it, The more I realized, yeah, this is totally in line uh, with with what we've been talking about. uh, Thinking about the connections between art and democracy, because I, I mean, they're kind of. I see them in two ways. One art in all the mediums is, is very democratic and that people have access to I mean even if it's just pencil and paper right almost anybody has access to that so the creation of art there is something very democratic about the way that that's distributed but that also there's a, there's a democratic nature to just um, consuming art that that I hadn't thought about
0: before yeah you know, like the storytelling elements of it right and I um I don't know how much you even know about this but like I practice art um, and, you know, how for a long time uh, and have friends in the art world and in the art space. And so I'm almost, I think I'm, I'm saying this because I'm all owning the fact that that, that narrow focus is almost like embarrassing to me that I hadn't thought <laughs> like we need to have an episode on the intersections of politics and art and democracy, Because it's so profoundly influential in my own life, yet I so often keep those worlds separate. Uh, In this this episode, and and to your point, this episode around kind of both art as amplification um, and access is so powerful, right? Amplifying stories and access to being able to produce those stories, I think is such a rich Part of what we mean by growing democracy and, and then the power of civic and political engagement.
1: Couldn't agree more. That's why I'm very excited for today's episode.
0: All right, we're super excited today to have with us Jay Lee Garcia. Uh, she is an artist born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Following the roots of her own biracial ancestry, Garcia uh, explores the complex relationship between Texans and Mexicans, particularly the racialization and displacement of unauthorized Latinx immigrants. Garcia frequently creates and exhibits work with collaborative art partners in projects such as Sonia Una Milpa, We Are Women United Against Hate, and Resiliencia. Garcia recently uh, received or received her MFA um, from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a BFA from the University of North Texas. She has received numerous awards for her work, including Southern Graphics Council International Best in Show, Arts Institute uh, Seneca, I don't know how to pronounce it, (laughs) Frank Graduate Fellowship for Women in the Arts, Madison Arts Commission Art Education Grant and Madison Print Club Madison Printmaking Award. We're so excited
2: to have you with us. I'm excited to be here. Nice to see y'all.
1: I'm really excited that we have uh, two folks from southwestern states to uh, gang up on Ashley today. Is He's that right? Michigan. Where
2: yeah, are I'm you from, from? Arizona. Arizona. Oh, I didn't know that. Nice.
1: So represent the southwest right? that's right <laughs> <laughs> i'm from michigan so i'm super midwest through and through yeah that's we'll forgive you we'll forgive you on our southwest podcast today <laughs> so lee i it, it's funny because you're at kent state university and of course ashley and i are too we've not met uh before well so ashley's met you before not not in person though have you
2: not in person not yet yeah
1: so we're, we're i think the kids are calling you now virtual friends is what we are <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, can you tell us and and uh, you know not just us there are listeners on the podcast just a little bit about yourself and your background?
2: Um, yeah, so like you said, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and where I'm from has a lot to do with sort of my personality. I think I was born and raised there. I'm actually a seventh generation Texan on my mom's side, and then on my dad's side, I'm a Mexican American, so also you know from northern Mexico. So that region of the world is really important to me. But I did move to Kent, Ohio about a year and a half ago for this job that I love so much. I, I, I miss Texas, but I love my job. Uh, so I'm an assistant professor of print media and photography at Kent State. Uh, and I'm also a practicing artist. And specifically, I'm a printmaker. So I do lots of printmaking, screen printing, especially. And I make work about undocumented immigration of Latinx people, specifically through the lens of my sort of biracial uh, heritage. So being half white, being half Mexican American and Sort of what that means to be, you know, exploring contemporary undocumented immigration through that lens.
0: I have a quick follow up.
2: What is printmaking? (laughs) That is a really good question (laughs) because I think a lot of people don't know. But when I tell them I'm a printmaker, they they just kind of smile and nod and don't actually ask. So I appreciate that. (laughs) But um, so the technical term for printmaking is the transfer of ink from one matrix to another. Most people know screen printing, so that's how you get graphics printed on t-shirts. But there's also woodcut printing, um, which is almost like stamps, stamp making. There is also lithography and there's also intaglio.
0: I love it. Two of my best friends are printmakers. um, And so I usually find that most people have no idea what printmaking is. Um, Or they have a very narrow idea of what it is. So can you tell us a little bit about some of your projects, especially some of your collaborative work concerning social justice?
2: Yes. So I do. I work with some collaborative art partners And, you know, I think it's funny because a lot of people think that art is this very solitary act, that artists are always, like, in their studio by themselves. And that is largely a big part of my practice. But I think my more favorite parts of my practice are working with other people. So um, I worked a lot with Maria Amalia Wood, who is an artist. And uh, specifically, she does a lot of paper making and a lot of sort of socially engaged artwork. But Maria and I met when we were in grad school. And she's an immigrant from Honduras. We're both Latinas. So we really connected. And we did this project called Soño Milpa in 2017. And what we did is Maria is really connected with the Madison, Wisconsin community. She's lived there for a long time. So she, we, you know, we interviewed 10 undocumented immigrant women that Maria was connected with through her church. And we interviewed these women and didn't really know where the project was going to go. We just knew that we wanted to do something to celebrate these women and their stories. And pretty much immediately, every woman that we, we sort of invited ourselves to their houses, <laughs> and then they would end up cooking us meals from their home countries. So that quickly became a big part of the project, food. But so Maria and I essentially ended up documenting their stories. So we have those documented somewhere, audio. And then we made works on paper to sort of organize their journeys to the United States. So we used printmaking and paper making processes And then once we had these works of art, we had a big celebratory event for the women. And we felt like we had invited ourselves to their homes. So we wanted to invite them into our space, which meant the University of Wisconsin-Madison Art Department. (laughs) So we kind of rented out a space in the art department for a day. And we just invited them and all of their families um, when we had speeches. And Maria had taken the time to sew so, quotes from the women's stories onto the napkins that we used. And that was like an incredible moment for them to sit down and see somebody had taken time to, to put their stories on these napkins. And it was just a beautiful event. We had the artwork up. We also had a sort of paper making demo. So the women and their families could do some paper making and learn a little bit more about the process. And then we also took photos of them with their families, some family portraits just to give back. And that it was interesting because, you know, we have these works on paper, the like sort of art. But it really felt like more of the art was just about celebrating them and giving them a space and a platform and also just showing them that their stories are really um, worth telling and they're beautiful. So Maria and I, we're currently working on something called Resiliencia, which is sort of on pause because of the pandemic. It's really hard to do socially engaged work during COVID, but we've been taking horrible comments that we find on YouTube about undocumented immigrants, which unfortunately is really easy to find. So we do that really kind of hard work at the beginning of sifting through these horrible comments and then we print them out on handmade paper and we pull them into strips and then we ask the public to make a mate paper, which is a traditional Mexican paper making process where you beat the fibers of the paper with a rock. So we have people come with us and they find a comment that kind of speaks to them or pisses them off and then we beat them together into paper. So it's really therapeutic, and we've found that it fosters a lot of really interesting conversations.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I have a follow-up, really, because I find this really interesting. I mean, being from the Southwest, there's uh, obviously large communities of um, of folks with, with Mexican heritage who are immigrants themselves. And I can imagine that uh, the sense of community there is such that, perhaps it's easier to get folks to open up to you when you're discussing issues of social justice. Is that harder when you're in a setting like, you know, a, a Midwest like Wisconsin or <laughs> Ohio, I have to imagine that 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 there aren't as large a communities and maybe there's a, kind of a sense of, I don't know, a resistance or, or, or caution about getting involved in, in your, in, in, in these incredible projects.
2: Yeah, that's such a good question. And it's something that I think about a lot, especially having sort of just settled down. My husband and I just bought a house in Ohio so a couple months ago, so I'm feeling like, okay, I'm kind of settled here in the Midwest now. Um, How do I find my Mexican-American community or my Latino community? So it's been interesting making artwork about undocumented immigration so far away from the border and always kind of reaching back home for my research. And just my mind is always home, but I'm physically somewhere else. But I've found that people in the Midwest are really open to learning about this. I think it's an issue that's not as close to home for Midwesterners. So it's something that they're really interested in, maybe don't know quite as much about. So there's that kind of, you know, educational aspect, I think, to the projects that I'm doing. And also I've been surprised at the undocumented community in the Midwest, specifically that I found in Wisconsin, um, because I hadn't thought of this before moving to Wisconsin, but the dairy industry is actually largely, you know, there are a lot of undocumented immigrants working in dairy farms. So there is a large undocumented population in the Midwest. I think it's just not the one that is so wrapped up in the media and sort of political conversations right now.
1: Okay, that is really interesting. Yeah, I, I'd actually heard that before, but it didn't occur to me But that, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So can you explain to us a little bit more about, and I'm really interested in this part, how printmaking can be a democratic art medium, historically right? used to activate political and social change?
2: Yes, exactly. So I think the history of printmaking is p- partially what drew me to printmaking as an art medium. I mean, first of all, I love printmaking It's just the process and the kind of like neurotic sort of personality you have to have for printmaking works really well <laughs> for me. But um, yeah, the history with it as well. So kind of like I mentioned before, it's the technical term is the transfer of ink from one matrix to another. So like the earliest forms technically of printmaking would be in cave stencils. So when cave people would put their hand up on the wall and kind of spray uh, paint at their, that's like a reproducible image. So technically that is printmaking. And then of course you have woodcuts in Japan and China that sort of were along, you know, before the printing press, but it wasn't until about 1440 when Johannes, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press with removable type that printmaking really, as we know it today, sort of started to take off. And I think that's where the democratic part comes in. So because of the ability to use removable text, the printing press allowed for textual based imagery or information to be distributed widely. And not only that, but also visual images. So, you know, back in 15th century Germany, when the literacy rate was super, super low, being able to print text is like great, but also these people can't read them. So having the ability to make a woodcut image and then print that in mass and then sell that for super cheap because you can make thousands and thousands of prints off of just one bullet block allowed for the working class and for the poorer people in Europe to start to collect art, but also information. And that would be, you know, political information, largely religious information in 15th century Europe. So it'd be like Biblical stories illustrated um, that people could have in their homes, but Yeah, I think that key element of printmaking is just the ability to make multiples and therefore to price these works super cheap So in that way, I think printmaking really is an art for and by the people And in my opinion is the most democratic form of art making that there is And I think it's just amazing to look at the history of printmaking and see how it has injected itself in virtually every major historical event in you know since its invention so you see it with like the american revolution and the french revolution and the mexican revolution up until contemporary times i mean people are still printing posters for black lives matter movement just today and making zines and posters and pamphlets so i don't know it's an amazing i can go on and on about how great printmaking is and how it's just an art form that's been used historically to create real change and that's why i love it so much
0: so on your website, uh, you explain that your work encourages awareness of our current immigration and foreign affairs policies through the lens of your biracial cultural identity. And you've you've talked about this a little bit already. Can you discuss with us a little bit more about immigration policies of the last four years have affected your work, um, especially since that really kind of you know, builds on this last, your last (laughs) point around the significance of printmaking and social change.
2: Yeah. So undocumented immigration specifically is an issue that I've always been aware of because my grandparents were undocumented. So my grandpa crossed the Rio Grande to get to the U.S. um, in about the 1940s. So it's something I've always been really aware of, but also something I've been kind of protected from because I'm a citizen and I'm also half white. So, you know, I don't have to think about these things constantly, but in 2016, when, you know, <laughs> around the election time, when the Trump campaign was using undocumented immigration as a part of their xenophobic platform, und- undocumented immigration really came to, like, the forefront of our political conversations. That's when I really started to become invested in undocumented immigration and researching what it means in a contemporary time. And that started with an actually, like, a Facebook link that I saw <laughs> about Brooks County, Texas, which is about 70 miles north of the Mexico-U.S. border. And because of its proximity is where a lot of undocumented immigrants end up dying of dehydration and exhaustion. And it's also a very poor county in Texas. And so when I didn't know this at the time, but after all this research, I've learned that in Texas, when an unidentified body is found, you're supposed to process it. There's all these rules. So it has to be in an impermeable container buried like six feet underground, something like that. But because Brooks County is super poor and also because of racial issues, um, these bodies were buried in really deplorable conditions. And so Baylor University in about 2016 heard about this issue and they went in helping to DNA process the bodies. And they were like, hey, we'll, we'll help you process these bodies for DNA. Hopefully we can connect them with their loved ones in Mexico or wherever they came from. And they thought they would find like 15, maybe 20 bodies. And they ended up finding over 350 So it was this huge mass grave in Brooks County, Texas. And reading about this on Facebook just totally shifted my artistic practice. And again, this is kind of in 2016 when the election is really ramping up and undocumented immigration is in in our news daily. So yeah, in 2016 is when things really changed for me. And since then, I've just really designated my artistic practice to highlighting contemporary undocumented immigration. And I think what I try to do most in my work is convey this idea that undocumented immigration isn't just people coming across the border to steal our jobs or like make more money. It's really what I consider to be economic refugees. It's an economic refugee crisis. And I think it's important too to look at how the United States has historically you know been involved in this. like we have with policies like NAFTA, the United States has used Latin American countries as economic satellites and has siphoned wealth for years and decades to the United States. And allowed for a flow of capital, but not allowed for people to follow that capital. And that's where we're at today. And of course, there's a larger historical context of colonization and racism. But yeah, these past four years, there's just been so much in the news and so much to draw from that I just can't stop thinking about it and I can't stop making art about it. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: there's there's so much, uh, at least from, from, from my vantage point, uh, attention paid to folks that really do have this uh, you know racist anti-immigrant perspective uh, I mean just from my home state of Arizona they made it illegal to provide water <laughs> to border crossers in your home state of Texas I, I mean they they, they target uh, undocumented immigrants uh, just to extremes where I mean even the president he called them all sorts of names uh, which I'm not going to repeat here but that that's got to take a toll on your psyche when you're doing this kind of social justice work. So I'm curious, what is it that keeps you motivated to stay engaged with this?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's so true. Like there are days when I just, I can't make art. Like I just need time to sort of do self-care and, and um, reflect. But I think what keeps me motivated to do it is recognizing the privilege that I have in this whole conversation. So I consistently sort of confront myself with my own whiteness and remind myself like, yes, I'm a person of color. I'm a woman of color. I'm a Latina, but I'm also half white. And I'm also a citizen of this country. And I'm also, uh, I have a master's degree and I'm a professor at a university. So I have all of these privileges to my advantage. And so that's what kind of keeps me motivated. It's like, look at how great I have it. And to compare that to what my grandparents went through what my dad went through, You know, being six years old, being enrolled in kindergarten, and never having spoken English, and the sort of trauma that you know my ancestors—that generational trauma. Yeah, just reflecting on all of that and and remembering how great I have it, and to be a full time artist—I mean, come on, that is such a privilege. Um, So that's what keeps me motivated. And of course, seeing the injustices every day—it just it makes me angry. And I think it's kind of a sad thing to recognize that my artwork is fueled by anger. That that's the primary emotion there, but it's a powerful one. We've been talking a lot
0: about the, the connections between your art and civic and political engagement. Um, but I actually want to pull back just a little bit and ask, what does political and civic engagement mean to you? And why is it important? I'm going to assume that you think it's important, but why is it important?
2: <laughs> yes, I do think civic engagement is important. And to me, it means, I think, first of all, staying informed because you can't really be engaged if you don't know what's going on in our world. And luckily today, it's so easy to stay informed. We have you know news outlets at the touch of our fingers on our phones, and we have wonderful podcasts like this to, to tune into whenever we want. So number one, I think staying informed, but also identifying ways in which we hold power, I think, and using that power to create change and make a more equitable society. So for me personally, I hold power in the classroom. So I'm a professor and I I have a little bit of power in that I can make sure that my students are exposed to diverse perspectives and voices when we talk about contemporary art and art history. So I'm always trying my best to make sure that I'm using examples from diverse perspectives also I think about how as a person who is a citizen of this country also as someone with no criminal background that I have the ability to go out to protests if they're city approved I can go to a protest without being you know having fear of being deported or being put on probation or whatever and then I think a lot about buying power I think civic engagement can really take form in your your money <laughs> So I'm a vegetarian and I have been for eight years and that's just a small way that I kind of stick it to the man and say, you know, I don't support concentrated animal feedlots because of the impact that they have on the environment and on communities of color. So I'm not going to buy meat and I'm not going to be a part of that system. Um, So I think, you know, we can't always do everything equitable hundred percent of the time. It can be really exhausting to think of civic engagement in these very small, minute everyday things. But I think if you're at least just staying aware and staying passionate that, that can be really significant.
1: So now if we were able to kind of uh, create this, like, I guess the phrase is engaged citizenry, but I don't like that. I, actually, I think we should change it to engaged populace. If we were to able to create this engaged populace, what does that look like to you? And, and how, how do you see us kind of going about creating this vision? Assuming that we have the power to do it, right? <laughs> I've got a genie in <laughs> a bottle and I can make this happen. Uh, what would that look like? And how would we go about doing it?
2: Oh man, that's such a hard question. And I feel sometimes I'm like, I'm just an artist. Like, I don't know. (laughs) All I do is draw all day. But um, (laughs) I think having an engaged populace would mean having people that again, are just staying informed, identifying their sources of power and using that power to make a more equitable society. And also just recognizing that we're part of a larger community. So I think during this pandemic, especially, it's been really easy to just focus on our day-to-day lives. And that maybe that's what we need to do right now is just kind of one foot at a time, you know, but there are things that are going on in our communities. And even if it's not affecting us directly, we're still a part of that community and we need to care. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter protests this year and recognizing that black men are being killed by police officers and incarcerated at an extremely disproportionate rate. I'm not black. And, you know, a lot of people that support the Black Lives Matter movement are not black. But we recognize that that's really important. If that's happening in your community, it's it affecting everyone in some way or another so yeah I don't know just reminding yourself of that that even if it doesn't affect you directly like you should how do you tell people you should care I don't know
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean I've struggled with that too and I guess (laughs) I I don't really know either I I guess I just try to tell them to to get different perspectives. And one of the things that you said that I found so interesting was, right, that you're trying to share this different perspective with your students, but obviously through your art, you're trying to share not only like your lived experience, but the lived experience of those that you've engaged in during your projects. I mean, how can, do you have any tips for us on how do we consume art from a social justice perspective?
2: Ooh, yeah, that's a loaded question for sure. And that's something, yeah, (laughs) I think about that too a lot. Like what sort of authority do I have to make work about undocumented immigration being a super privileged citizen of this country? And like, yes, I'm a sort of byproduct of that phenomenon, but there are a lot of amazing undocumented immigrant artists who are making work about that right now. And I think that's why I've sort of shifted my practice to be a little bit more about my specific biracial perspective and being very, transparent I guess with who I am and my whiteness and I think I've kind of forgotten what your question was <laughs> was it how to process how, that kind of work? how do
1: we consume art right so if i want to consume art how do i do that from a social justice perspective cuz cuz i guess i'm not uh, it, it, it's it's not clear to me how I can identify. Do I d- identify those that have a certain background and, and consume their art from trying to understand their perspective? Is that how I glean more about understanding, I don't know, their lives and and, and the, the trials that they've gone through? Uh, or, and what else can I do? How else can I consume art if my goal, right, is social justice?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would argue that like any art is political art because it's engaging with something somewhere. <laughs> so, oh, gosh, I don't know. That's such a hard question, honestly. And um, I don't know if I really have the answer for that, but I think, <laughs> yeah, at some, sometimes I try to like, when I see artwork from a, a different perspective that I'm not aware of, I do sort of think through that lens of like, Oh, I'm, I'm getting like an insight into their life right now but sometimes that's not really true. And I I sort of am assigning those labels to that artwork. So I don't know if it's more just about being more open when you're experiencing work and sort of focusing on the more universal things that are, might be there, like emotions.
1: No, I love that answer. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I
0: really like that answer. I think that, right. Right. Don't assume that there's a story that is there. Exactly. um, But like, let it resonate with you, and if you have extra questions, investigate. Mm-mm. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is uh, this this question that I have for you is, you know, related to that, um, but maybe you know, kind of bringing it back to a policy relevant question, of course, because Casey and I always bring things back to policy relevant questions. Uh, so, the arts are often the first thing to be cut. I've been having lots of conversations around higher ed and journalism, right? Like, but the arts are even more directly confronting what it means to not be supported through public funds, to be viewed often as not essential. And from everything you've been saying, that's complete garbage, right? <laughs> like they are essential. They're political platforms. They're a space for sharing stories and amplifying lived experiences. You know, but from your perspective, can you Give us your opinion um, on the importance of of the arts and arts funding um, for creating a more inclusive society and and, and you know what in what ways might we advocate for those resources to be to be plentiful?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean I very strongly believe that the arts can create a more inclusive society and I think that can happen in a lot of different ways probably the most direct would be viewing art from diverse perspectives. So maybe you're seeing artwork made by, you know, a demographic of person that you're not super familiar with. And so you are sort of seeing their expression and that might open your mind to other possibilities and just perspectives and culture. But I think other ways that art can create an inclusive community or society would be experiencing art with others. So thinking about viewing art as sort of an experience, So maybe you're, you know, have some friends and y'all go to an art gallery and you see art and that can really foster community and can foster really great conversations to create a more inclusive society. And then, of course, there's art making itself. So how can we make art making (laughs) more accessible to specifically diverse populations or underrepresented populations that maybe wouldn't have the ability to express themselves otherwise? Because expression, self-expression is so important. And I think about it, my sister's a mental health counselor, and we have these kind of conversations all the time about how expression is just so important for mental health. And especially in a time, you know, we're in a freaking pandemic, (laughs) there's political polarization. I mean, it's really scary to live in a time that we do. And I think especially for communities of color and underrepresented communities, they're feeling really powerless and really frustrated right now. And having art and, and not just visual art, but any kind of art, you know, dance, music, theater, having some sort of an outlet to express yourself is so important for, yeah, just for expressing yourself and sharing that. And I think that can sort of lead to larger conversations and signal to a, a larger society that there are issues that need addressing and hopefully can act as an instigator for change.
0: Have you experienced personally some of the the complications of cuts in funding or anything like that? Like how would, I just want to kind of go back to that specific question and like, are there ways that we can take action um, to ensure that resources are available for what exactly what you're, you're suggesting?
2: Yeah. I'm thinking about specific examples. I mean, for me, I think about arts funding a lot just through academia, because that's, you know, my life right now and being in grad school, that's kind of the number one question we hear from grad students. And when I was a grad student, that was my number one concern is like, How how am I going to pay for an arts education? Why should I pay for an arts education? Is it even going to be worth it in the long run? And am I going to be able to make money off of this degree? And I know people that unfortunately are thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt from their art degrees. And I don't know if they would answer that it was worth it. But um, yeah, I think as far as on an individual basis, how we can sort of support the arts is just by buying art. And, you know, luckily in today's society with social media and the internet, it is so easy to buy art from real artists. And so I kind of cringe every time I go to Target or, you know, Hobby Lobby or Walmart and you see these cheap, reproducible imagery. It's like, oh, so tacky. And I see people with them in their shopping carts and I just want to be like, stop, like, let me show you all of these artists on Instagram. Like I have dozens and dozens of friends with amazing art. And printmakers specifically that sell their work really cheap because they can make multiples. Um, <laughs> so I think just buying art and if you don't know where to start, Etsy is a great place um, or even just local art art fairs. A quick Google search, I'm sure you can find an art fair in your community.
1: Love that so much. Okay, so while we're at the part of the show where we ask you, is there anything you would like to add? I also want to know, what is your favorite museum?
2: Oh, I think my favorite museum is... The Perez in Miami, Florida. So I've only been there twice, but um, they had an installation there, one by, I think her name's Ebony Patterson. There was an installation by a Black woman artist that was, oh my gosh, it made me cry. It was amazing. So it's a great museum.
1: All right, listeners, if you're there, attend. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners or add to today's conversation?
2: Well, I've already said it once, but I'll say it again buy art <laughs> support artists
1: <laughs> I love it thank you so much it was fabulous having you with us today
2: thanks you too
1: thanks for listening to the growing democracy podcast I'm Casey Boyd Swan and my co-host as always is Ashley Nichols our podcast is produced by David Jursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Knot Studio right here in Cleveland Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we talk with Dr. Shamara Arkey, Interim Director of the Center for Pan-African
2: Culture at Kent State University.